I just want to jump in here with a quick note about some changes that are happening. This podcast is now going ad-supported. What that means is I will be releasing select episodes from the hundreds of episodes I have archived now on Patreon and releasing them here. A lot of these were recorded a couple of years ago during 2020 especially. However, I have gone through them and deemed that the parenting information was still really relevant. So just be aware that some of these releases may be out of order chronologically. Also, if you would like to listen to the podcast ad-free, you can still join Patreon. I'll still be releasing podcasts there with a few bonuses. One is that it will be ad-free. One will be that you get the podcast slightly earlier than everybody else. And I'll also be doing a bonus episode every month with a Q&A that's patron specific. So if that's something you'd like to do, you can join for a dollar a month and we'll see you there. Thanks, guys. Hey, I'm Jamie Glowacki and you are listening to Oh Crap, I Love My Toddler, But Holy Fuck. This is a podcast for conscious parents who drop the F-bomb a lot. Hey, hey, you guys. So this is episode two, dealing with trauma. This month and focusing on trauma is, it's like opening every can of worms. And I want to say that I'm hugely ambitious in taking this on and it's becoming abundantly clear throughout the month because like every time I think of something else related to trauma, it's sort of another rabbit hole. So I said this in the first episode, and I'm going to say it again today. Because I'm doing this for a broad audience, it's going to be broad strokes. So I'm hoping that I give you a wider scope to explain and understand your trauma and how it affects you, how it affects your parenting. But this is literally just going to be jumping off points. You could go down. I mean, just bringing up narcissism will bring you down a rabbit hole that could probably be seven podcasts in and of itself. So just know that it's going to be nearly impossible for me to address every single nuance. It Not nearly impossible. It's going to be impossible <laughs> for me to address every single nuance. So I want this to serve as a jumping off point for understanding and clarity for you. Today's episode, I really want to go through some definitions because a lot of words associated with a trauma have entered our general lexicon in a, a very casual kind of way, and it can minimize the trauma, but there also can be a lack of understanding about what you're actually dealing with. And I think it's really important in this day and age where it almost seems like there's hardly any fact, I think it's just really important to stay true to the definitions of things so that they don't get watered down and there's not misunderstandings. Picking up where I left off on the first episode, I want to add in a few things based on comments people have been saying in Patreon. So I gave you the, the ways that trauma shows up in parenting, and I listed them as one, one addictions, two perfection parenting, three extreme independence, four poor boundaries, five hairpin triggers, and six victimhood. And number two, perfection parenting, that can show up just as perfection period, not just in your parenting, right? But those are the ways it shows up. But those are kind of broad categories, and under those umbrellas come other things. For example, there is hypervigilant parenting, right? The parenting where you might have trauma. I know a couple of people mentioned a sibling dying when they were young, and so these parents are more prone to hypervigilant parenting because they are aware that children can die 
from, you know, sudden and unforeseeable accidents. So that, but that would go under perfection parenting, right? We have a lot of parents who know they're too lenient because they want to avoid conflict, right? They know that they are too lenient or they know that their spouse is too lenient. So again, that comes under poor boundaries. So pretty much I think whatever if you are aware of certain behaviors you have as a trauma response, I think they all fall under those six things that I listed in the first episode. A big issue that came up was dealing with a spouse. A couple of people commented that both parents are working through traumas and their trauma responses, but they're sort of opposite or not the same issues and leading them to different parenting and a struggle with that or a struggle with a parent who has poor boundaries. I might talk about that in the the next two episodes coming up, but recognize that that's not exactly trauma. So that's same page parenting. And I have been thinking about doing something with that term forever because it largely comes up. It comes up, of course, in potty training. It comes up in parenting is two parents who aren't on the same page. And so it may be rooted in trauma that like the way your spouse acts you can see, or they may even be aware that it's rooted in trauma, but that is definitely something I could not ever help you with because that's hearsay, right? That's a third triangulation, which I'll define in a, in a few minutes. I can't help you help somebody else because you're only giving me your side of the story. Do you know what I'm saying? So recognize that I do know that's an issue and I do have ways to help get you on the same page, but that wouldn't be considered trauma work. That's like parenting, like same page parenting. Even though, like I said, you may be aware that it's rooted in some trauma. So with those six things, we have trauma responses called fight, flight, freeze. And there is a fourth one, which is called fawning. And I want to spend some time on that because I think we're all aware of fight, flight, and freeze, but fawning is a fourth trauma response. And one of the things I'm hoping to do with this episode is expand your emotional vocabulary. You guys, we have a rich rich inner life that's going on at all times. And what I have found throughout the years is the very first step is recognizing that rich inner life. So a lot of times, like say you have that hairpin trigger that I talked about last episode, how that begins is you don't, you're not even aware that you have it till you start losing relationships, till you enough people tell you like, you're explosive, man, or it, it starts to really affect your life. So the very first thing in discovering this rich inner life of which you can peel the onion layer away for years and years. And I mentioned that before, right? I'm 52. I've done so much work. I literally, like my therapist, my old therapist has three houses on my dime. Like I just, I know it because I just paid out of pocket all the time. So it was like discovering this is, I think the beauty of life and, and the beauty of our work. You know what I mean? but you uncover it in layers. And so the very first step is, of course, just recognizing that you have it. So that's what this episode really is about, is like recognizing it. And trauma comes in two sort of parts, right? Like there's the response, there's how you respond. And that's, of course, the first thing you're going to learn because you start to recognize that you have some sort of maladaptive behavior, right? So then you go, okay, something's up. So like for me, for example, in my late teens and early 20s, I was a cutter. I literally one night just cut myself and I couldn't even, I don't know why. It wasn't premeditated. It wasn't even a thought in my head. And I had no idea. It took me about, oh my God, 
10 years to unlock why I started to have that behavior. Now, cutting was overt, right? I was like, something is fucking wrong with me because people don't do this. You know, I immediately got into therapy because I was like, what is this? Why? Why am I doing this? What I also didn't recognize was that I was drinking too much and that was also a maladaptive behavior, but I was in a bar crowd. So it didn't seem, you know, it didn't seem like it was that bad. So we have these maladaptive behaviors that can go on and on. We don't even recognize them at first till all of a sudden something trips the wire and it really becomes maladaptive. And then we go, well, wait a minute, something's not right here. Other people don't do this, right? So that's the first thing that we have to uncover. Then once we start that, we go down this rabbit hole of like, okay, well, why do why did that happen? Then we have to look at all our shit. And that's where you open Pandora's box and you go, okay, this was, you know, my mom's behavior, my dad's behavior, my generational trauma, and all these things start to, you know, we start to go down the rabbit hole. It is never as easy as, you know, well, my mom was clearly a narcissist and that's why I do this. It's never that plain. It's never that easy. And a lot of these things, remember that we are, we all are dysfunctional. We all do things that protect our ego, protect our sense of self, protect our inner child. We all do this. And so a lot of times uncovering this stuff, we do a lot of these maladaptive behaviors to push that feeling away, right? Because we can't, we don't want to live in that shame that we experience as a child. We don't want to live in those wounds. So the maladaptive behavior serves to cover the wounds, right? That's really important to remember because you have to kind of break it up. And again, this points to go slow because it's really hard when people try to rush their trauma and they, you can rush it, but you're going to have to reopen all those doors at some point in time again anyway. So let's talk about this fight, flight, or freeze. First of all, because fight, flight, or freeze, we're used to hearing that in a very physical sense. Like you feel danger, you know, like, I don't know, you pull into a gas station and somebody's robbing the store. You will have a fight, flight, or or freeze response, right? So we tend to think of that in like a very physical way, but it also applies to the psychological process and to the psyche. So if you look at those six ways that trauma can show up in your in your life and in your parenting, addictions, perfection, extreme independence, those are all a version of fight, flight, or freeze. Poor boundaries. Poor boundaries is often a freeze, right? Like you don't know what to do, so you do nothing. And that can show up. Addictions is also, is a way of flight, certainly to flee the emotional pain, but it's also a freeze. You want to just freeze, do nothing, halt it and let, you know, let things go so that they don't enter your, your consciousness, right? So those can all apply to the psychological process as well, as well. And then there's a fourth one called fawning and fawning is really important. I remember my friend, Melissa brought it up to me with a thread on Facebook. And I'm telling you guys like Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, I don't know, like, I don't know where these originate, but people are coming up with the best consolidations of some of these processes. And so this was a, this was a thread, but it led me to go down a deeper rabbit hole because like it was so, it so resonated with me and who I am. So let me define it for you. Fawning is when you um, use compliments and positive validation to other people to keep gain acceptance and validation. It stems from when a child learns that being compliant and helpful gets them safety and attachment. Yeah. So usually what there's one narcissistic parent who presses them into service, like scaring or shaming them. And so they jump out of developing a sense of self. So they are, they give to other people and here are the hallmarks of it. They are always apologizing. And I shouldn't say they, in fact, I'm going to say we, because fawning describes me to a T always apologizing 
can't say how you really feel. So you're in a relationship and you you don't say what you really feel because you fear abandonment. This is me. Ugh. I, I don't always apologize, but Jesus, I am really working on being authentic and saying what I really feel. You always end and use lots of emojis on group chats. And I think this is hilarious because it's so modern. You want to make sure nobody's mad. So you will always end with a smiley emoji. You will always end with like the crying, laughing emoji. That's me. That's my MO. And you always end the chat so that it wraps up so that there's sort of closure because you want to make sure everybody feels like they were heard and you acknowledge them. And I am dying inside because that is so me. And I didn't even realize I had that text behavior. Everybody's needs matter more than you in a sense that it may not be that you're self-sacrificing. So I am not, I have really good boundaries with people's needs don't come before mine in the physical world, but how it manifests in the psychological world is you always see it from their point of view. You can understand and see what's happening. And this is where I've shared with you guys how my relationship with my best friend and my sister sort of imploded and it they imploded at the same time. And I really believe the, the exact same time. And I really believe I am not a subtle person. My God has to take a baseball bat to my head before I learn a lesson. And so to me, that was the lesson. And these this fawning, this describes what was happening and how I broke free of these relationships. And it was because I was fawning. I could, I never could say how I feel. I always have to end everything with both of those people with, with the, um, smiling, crying, laughing emoji. So that um, don't be mad. Like, did I say the wrong thing constantly on tender hooks? Did I say the wrong thing? And always, always, always just seeing it from their point of view. And I'm like, well, I, I understand where it comes from, but meanwhile, I'm getting bludgeoned. And so that also happened. I'm going to go into, I was engaged to a man uh, six years ago, and it ended up he was a very toxic, malignant narcissist. And I'm going to define narcissist in this episode as well. But um, this was also, that was my issue. My part in the trauma that was created was that I couldn't say what I really felt because I feared abandonment. I was too latched into not being abandoned. And I was always seeing it from their point of view until it got so toxic that I had to extricate myself and just leave the relationship because, you know, while you can always understand a person's point of view, they don't get to act shitty. They may get to act shitty to you once or twice, but they don't get to repeatedly act shitty to you. And so seeing their point of view is great. But when it starts to bludgeon you, that's when it gets fucked up. So I just wanted to point those guys out because fawning, I think, is a really subtle form of a trauma response that we often forget about. So let's go into, and if you hear papers rattling, it's because I have a shit ton of notes on this, you guys, because it's it's so important. And there's just, like I said, there, there was so much. I was like, oh my God, I could make this episode three hours if I wanted to. So let's go into the big definitions first. The very first one is gaslighting. And gaslighting, I feel very, um, I want to describe this in full because it's a term that's really misused right now. And gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation in which a person or group covertly sowed seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or group, making them question their memory, their perception, and their judgment, okay? This renders the victim additionally dependent on the gaslighter for emotional support and validation. It may evoke extreme changes in a person. So the name gaslighting comes from a, it's a 1938 play, and then it was made into a film in 1949, where the husband 
would go around. These were the days when you could commit your spouse. You, a man could commit his wife to a mental institution for anything. So a lot of men would just commit their wives when they were tired and wanted to move on, right? They didn't get a divorce. They just committed them to mental institutions. So what he would do in this movie is he would dim the lights and ask her to turn them on. She would turn on the gas lights, right? Because they didn't have like um, lamps. It was these gas lights in the house. And he would go and dim them. And then he would say, you need to turn on the lights. And she would be like, but I I did turn on the lights. And he'd be like, no, you didn't. Right. And so she slowly started to question her sanity. And she was like, well, Jesus, did I? Did I not? So that's like an overt. And all of these things, you guys, all of these definitions can be overt or covert. They can be the person's very aware of what they're doing. So in this particular case, the the man was very aware of what he was doing. What I have found throughout my life is that a lot of gaslighters are gaslighting you to protect their ego. And it ties very closely into narcissism. And they're going to switch their story so that their ego doesn't get wounded. And the political arena, I don't feel like has a large place in our work here, but I do feel like Donald Trump was a really good example. The biggest one was, I think, when he like mocked that disabled reporter. And then he said, no, I didn't. And so that's protecting the ego. He made a mistake. He fucked up. He did something that he probably shouldn't have done. And instead of owning it and apologizing, he said, no, I didn't. And I think what was especially maddening was like, well, we have video. And there was that would happen routinely throughout his president. No, I didn't say that, but people would have taken a screenshot of the of the, the tweet. So that's gaslighting. And it's my opinion that he his ego just couldn't handle that he did something wrong, right? And so we all do something wrong, but the gaslighter is going to make you doubt yourself, right? So that they their ego is protected. And that's where they really subversive and insidious and really malignant trauma comes in. And this shit can take you years to get to because like it gets very complicated. Anyway, that's what gaslighting means is when somebody either knowingly or unknowingly consistently makes you doubt yourself and what usually you can spot. So this happened to me with this this guy I was engaged to. There was all this gaslighting and I, I lost friends, you guys. And Okay, you guys know me as Jamie, the potty trained, the parenting lady, right? Like I seem pretty capable, I think, to you guys. I became a shadow of myself. I lost friends because they were like, dude, this is abuse and I couldn't see it. I had to constantly call friends and be like, does this sound right? Am I this way? Does this my usual response? And and it was really bad. And it when, you know, the definition is it can invoke, it can evoke changes in the victim. I can't even tell you how how much I changed. And I literally cried for a year and it took me years to get over that. So to, to kind of get myself back in a, a, a sane sort of place. So this, this can, this gaslighting can be really insidious. And so you may have grown up with this. You may have grown up with parents who behaved very badly and then told you they didn't. There's all kinds of like offshoots of gaslighting, but that's the main definition. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about some toxicity some toxic behaviors that we see that sort of touch off of gaslighting and narcissism, but I want to get the big definitions out of the way. The next one is codependency because codependency is another term. Oh, she's so codependent. It's one of those terms like boundaries. It's very slippery. It's like trying to cup water in your hand. It just is constantly slipping through your fingers as far as like what it is. And I relate it 
I think it's very similar to boundaries in that sense, because I remember it took me years to figure out like what boundaries actually meant. It's a very slippery concept, right? So the actual definition is a relationship imbalance where one person enables another person's addiction, poor mental health, maturity, underachievement, right? There's an excessive reliance on other people for approval or a sense of identity. It's really less of a diagnosis and more of a relationship dynamic, okay? I like Sean Byrne, who's a PhD. She gives some hallmarks of codependence, and I really like these. So one, there's an excessive and unhealthy tendency to rescue and take responsibility for other people. I was a classic codependent. Uh, You can ask my mother when I was a kid, you know how kids bring home like stray animals? I would bring home stray kids. I'd be like, this one needs help. I was like always a social worker, even when I was like eight years old. (laughs) So (laughs) um, the unhealthy tendency to rescue people, yeah, present and accounted for. Two, they derive a sense of purpose and self-esteem through extreme self-sacrifice to satisfy the needs of others. So that makes them feel important, right? Like you're going to sacrifice yourself for helping other people. Three, you choose to enter and stay in high cost caretaking and rescuing others despite the cost to you. Four, regularly try to change troubled, addicted, underfunctioning people whose problems are way too big. So I used to be guilty of this because again, it I think it stemmed also from a social worker heart, right? which is like, I can see it goes back to that fawning. I can see why this person is like an addicted mess. I can see how their childhood affected them and caused their own trauma responses. So I would help. I would want to fix that because I could see it so clearly. Meanwhile, creating my own dysfunction, right? <laughs> they seem to affect attract low-functioning people looking for someone to take care of them. They attract people in perpetual crisis and unwilling to change their lives. So yeah, look around. Do you have friends? Is your life a crisis because of other people? And you're constantly helping other people. And it's your idea of friendship or relationships that you have to constantly be there for people. And it can be weird because it takes you a while to step out of this and recognize it because you might just be like, well, no, no, honestly, all my friends just really need my help. That's a hallmark. And then the sixth one is having a pattern of well-intentioned, but ultimately unproductive uh, helping behaviors such as enabling. Like again, you're enabling people to do things. And so it's very well-intentioned, but it becomes unhealthy because there's no space for you in that. So that's uh, codependency. We have to slip down the rabbit hole of narcissism because narcissism is huge. And having a narcissistic parent, which I think a lot of us really did experience, is where a lot of this trauma response is rooted. Now, if you Google narcissist, you're going to pull up more shit than shit. And there's like six types. There's nine types. There's this type. There's that type. I found the most common ground in four types of narcissism. So that's where I'm going to go with. But, you know, if you feel like you are dealing with a narcissistic partner or a narcissistic parent, or you're looking at your trauma work because you know you had a narcissistic parent, I encourage you to go down this rabbit hole because there's all kinds of narcissists and it ranges. It's used in our society very commonly as somebody who's self-centered. Yeah. And we're all self-centered, you guys. It behooves us to be (laughs) self-centered. Like even in these maladaptive behaviors, we're still protecting our own self and our own 
delicate ego way inside. So, so just know that like we all have flavors of being self-centered kids. Kids are the ultimate narcissist. Of course they're self-centered. They don't give a fuck about anything that you're going through because they're growing. Their survival depends on them being self-centered at this point in time. Your three-year-old would get nothing. They, they would stunt their development if they were caring for other people, right? So let's go over those four types. And, and I feel like most, you know, I, there are nine types. Again, there are six types, but I feel like they all kind of fall under these main topics. There's your grandiose narcissist, and this is your typical extroverted, big ego, very vain. You can usually see them a mile away. They're going to dominate conversation with all their achievements and accomplishments. They're, they're kind of annoying. They're going to be the guy who has the really nice suit. Oh, by the way, narcissism tends to be stronger in males. But of course, we know that our moms <laughs> can be narcissistic. So if I say he a lot, it's because because of that. The, the grandiose is extroverted, big egos, very vain. Um, they tend to be the best in the room. So this type, this grandiose does tend to be more male dominated because it's going to be the guy who's that top of the food chain at work, has you know the BMW and the Porsche, and you're going to hear about it like the first five minutes in conversation. They really, really care what people think about them, and that's of utmost importance. And if you try to threaten that, that is linked closely with their ego, and they will lash out. The second type of narcissist is covert. This tends to be the introverted, very quiet. They are very grandiose, but in a very quiet way. And it's it's well kept. And what happens is they feel like the world is always against them. The odds are stacked against them and they have a huge victim mentality. So one of the things, you know, like psychology has always been my work. And so I've always been aware of narcissism. And one of the ways I got so linked in and hooked in with a narcissist partner is he was a covert narcissist. So he didn't have that best of the best, like finest suits and the best job. He was a yoga teacher and he was the most spiritual. So he had this like weird narcissism that was like, he was going to be the poorest because the poor, that's, that expresses your spirituality. And it was all like sort of a front. And literally when we ended up finally ending it after therapy and all kinds of drama, he was like, well, clearly I'm more enlightened. And so I can't go out with unenlightened people. I can never be in a relationship with unenlightened people like you. So it was that sort of grandiosity that like, that I'm better than everybody, but then the world was against him, right? Like nobody wanted him to teach in their studio because clearly he was better than everybody else. And I was like, well, if nobody wants you to teach yoga in their studios, maybe it's you. (laughs) So, you know, hindsight 2020, I can see a lot of things now that I couldn't see then. Number three is malignant. Malignant is sadistic, mean. They can show criminal behavior. They actually enjoy hurting people. This type is often presented as knowing what they're doing, right? They they are fully aware. I would beg to differ that I think there's malignant narcissisms who are totally aware. And again, I'm going back to the example of my fiance because he also had shades of malignant narcissism, which is there was such a deep childhood wound. So to give you some context, he was abused as a child in like a cage in the basement abuse, like the, the, the stories that are written as case studies in like in huge journals, like awful, awful, awful child abuse. And of course me, right? The codependent, I found the person who needed fixing. Right? <laughs> and so then he had this like covert grandiose with the the outward display, but inside the protecting. So we all have this wounded child, right? And so this 
this wounded child, you can't touch that. You cannot touch that. That child cannot handle, they, that inner child did not develop properly. So you can't touch it with a 10 foot pole. So then we erect this ego and all this other various coping mechanisms and maladaptive behavior to protect that, right? And so the malignant narcissist is going to really jab to protect that ego and they get mean. They get super mean because they will do anything to protect that. And so this type of narcissist is the most dangerous kind. And if you are in, if you think that you're dealing with a malignant narcissist, the most important thing is to get away. You have to get away. And I thank God every day that I didn't marry this man, that we didn't have children together, that we didn't intertwine our lives because it's very easy for me to walk away. I'm not easy psychologically, but very easy physically to walk away. These are going to be horrible people to deal with in a divorce. And so, but there is no dealing with them. There's really no dealing with them. And the fourth type of narcissist is communal. So this person like appears to be warm, kind, giving, but actually they're only warm, kind, and giving for like a super validation and attention and to feel superior to others. So those are the types of narcissists. Again, when we look at what you're dealing with, so if you think you had a narcissistic parent, it's really worth figuring out what kind of narcissist you're dealing with because it's going to help you heal better. And again, if you have a parent, if you're dealing with a parent who you think is a malignant narcissist, I give you full permission. You have every right to just ditch that. There's no reasoning with a malignant narcissist. On that note, let's continue with some definitions because I'd like to talk about generational trauma. So generational trauma, it's not experienced as one person, right? It's sort of passed along from generation to generation. Slavery, what Black people are experiencing today in America, that's generational trauma. What happens is that domestic violence, sexual abuse, hate crimes, racism, all of these, whether subtle or overt, literally can change your DNA. It can change your genetics. They're doing more and more. Now we have this like advanced, sophisticated technology. We can see what PTSD does to the brain and it fucks you up. It like totally changes who you are as a person, not just psychologically, it changes everything. It changes your genetics and your DNA. So there's this generational trauma that can be passed on and it can be as big as racism. It can be as big as uh, sexual abuse. It comes in different forms. It can come in like the overt sense. So we know that people who were beaten tend to beat people. We know that people who were sexually abused tend to sexually abuse. So that's like a really overt, like you can see it passed down. And then there's the more subtle things. And this can be like a behavior or something that's sort of, you learned it from your parents and so you do it. Victimhood can be a really big one. Oh, the world is against me, poor me. Like that can be a learned behavior. So that can come under generational trauma. The thing that um, for me that I could see very clearly this this separation from my sister and my best friend, I could see some really toxic things that came into play that are generational. And one of the things is it's less about, like I knew my sister's behavior was toxic, but I was afraid to sever ties because my family would would get mad at me. They would say, well, you didn't do enough to, to help. And so 
I realize that's a pattern in my family that's been going on for generations. So that falls under generational trauma. And so some of the uh, pain in letting go of this relationship was like, I could feel this hole. It really manifested for me on Thanksgiving day. I could feel this sucking hole that I was like cutting this generational trauma. And so that's what made it like so super powerful. So know that you guys here, being here, listening to these episodes, or the, the stuff you guys have commented on Patreon, you're dealing with your trauma now. You are, chances are you're breaking generational trauma, which is what's making it so fucked up and so yucky. And let, recognize though that, oh my God, I just, if I could hug every one of you, you're breaking the cycle for your kids. And do you know how powerful that is? Like, it's just so amazing. So give yourself huge credit. Please, please, please. Even if you feel like shitty, you feel like you're unable to break the chains that you're, you're constantly falling into the same patterns. Just know that the awareness, you being here, you showing up in this way, you're breaking that generational trauma. And that is so important. Like your kids are so fucking lucky. Even, I don't care if you're yelling at them every day, but you're aware you're like, fuck, I got to stop yelling. That's a trauma response. And I got to figure this out. Your child is so lucky that you're doing this work. Okay. And so blessed. So those are the big terms that I think we tend to use. And so I wanted to get clear about those, but I also wanted to point out some other toxic behavior that you may be dealing with, with, I think the large majority of us are dealing with our parents, their toxicity, their being in our lives, their toxicity affects us and our parenting, but their toxicity also affects your children. And you can see it plainly laid out. So a few toxic sort of definitions, victim blaming. So this is when it's most often seen, I think, in rape or sexual assault. Well, well, she did dress that way. She did act that way. So that's blaming the victim. There's another like subtle form of that that I, I alluded to a few minutes ago that my family doesn't, since I've become vocal about it, more and more people have said, yeah, that's totally what my family does too. So there's no secret, I think, that most of you are here, you're drawn to me because I think we've had similar experiences. I think that's just how the universe works. And so I feel like you guys might be dealing with this too. You are the truth teller in your family. You're the one who says, I'm not playing this game anymore. I'm changing the paradigm of parenting. You might be the black sheep. You might be the one who is always talking about the pink elephant in the room. Like that's me. I'm like, are we not going to look at this big thing in the middle of the room. And the rest of my family is like, no, no, let's do a shot. And let's not even talk about that. <laughs> right? But one thing that I noticed, and it took me a long time to figure this out is I am that person. And routinely I am the one who gets shunned for telling the truth. So nobody addresses the behavior. So if I call my mom out on a behavior, yeah, she blames me. And so it's not quite victim blaming, but literally this happened. Oh my God, this happened in the pandemic. Okay. I ordered a dress and it was like a A line, you know, one of those like flowy dresses. Well, I got it. And it made me look like it it was too flowy. It didn't show my figure at all. It made me look pregnant. So anyway, I wore it out one day just to see if I, how I felt about it. And I went to my mom's and she was like, oh, when are you due? Why didn't you tell me you were having another baby? Right. Pretty rude remark, all things considered. And I was like, oh, and I didn't, that would have made me cry 20 years ago, but I was like, oh, okay. Well, I couldn't decide if I wanted to keep this dress. I guess I'm returning it. And she was like, why? And I was like, uh, cause you just said I look pregnant. And she was, and she got pissed at me. She was like, oh my God, why are you so sensitive? And I was like, dude, you're the one who fucking made a rude remark. 
I didn't even overreact. I just said, okay, well, that confirmed what I thought about it. And now she's acting all pissed off. And that is a very minor, tiny, not dramatic example of this thing I'm talking about. And it's part deflection and it's part victim blaming. And I don't have a term for it, but the person flips the table on you. And all of a sudden you're apologizing, right? It's like kids do this, right? (laughs) Like when they say like they do something wrong and then they you reprimand them and then they cry because you reprimanded them, right? They go, well, you hurt my feelings. And you you find yourself like, oh, I'm sorry. No, wait a minute. You're the one who threw a toy at my head. Why am I apologizing? So that's a very toxic trait, yeah? And that toxic trait, again, giving the example of severing the relationship with my sister, that part was easy. The next part is when my family, I, I haven't said anything, but when my family discovers, yeah, they're gonna get mad at me. And so I'm just prepared for that. And that's the hard, that's like the actual hard part about severing that relationship. There's deflection. That's a toxic behavior. So the person who just won't, and we see this a lot. I I address this a lot in how to apologize that episode, right? The person who deflects, deflects, deflects. It's not their fault. It was somebody else's fault. It was your fault, but they're going to deflect. They're not going to apologize. They're going to say those weird apologies like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's not an apology. You know, I'm sorry you did that thing that made me get upset. So that's deflection. Then there's projection. Okay. And projection is one of those, again, it's a very slippery thing when you're dealing with projection. It's when somebody literally sort of projects their shit onto you. And it, what happens is you often have the sense of, wait, you're talking about somebody else. This isn't me. I don't know what you're talking. Like you get the sense that they're talking about somebody else. I'll give you a clear example. In the decimation of the relationship with my best friend, she was Muslim. And during the pandemic, something happened where she was, there was some sort of internal fight about her religious, her spiritual life. I have no qualms about who's who has what religion. I don't care if you want to pray with me. I would go to the mosque with her. I would do like, you know, Muslim activities with her. I would take part in Ramadan and eat it. It, it was very interesting to me culturally. And then during the pandemic, she was like, she freaked out on me about her not being able to be the full Muslim wo- woman she wants to be. And I was like, so confused. What are you talking about? And then I realized her dad, she was a Muslim convert and her dad was Italian Catholic and like mocks her religion, like openly mocks it, is openly prejudiced, mocks when she wears um, head coverings. So I realized, oh my God, you're projecting like all your father's shit onto me. It was literally like she was throwing, like I had become her father, right? And so that, and the sense I had was like, wait a minute, this isn't me. You're not talking about me. Like I've been very supportive. That was the sense I had inside. And so- You'll feel that in relationships, like people will be projecting something onto you and it feels very yucky because it's not you. It's not your, it's not relation. It's not present time. Another really toxic behavior we get from parents, especially is blanket statements, right? Those, especially you're too sensitive. Show of hands if you recall too sensitive. I was definitely labeled too sensitive that I thought something was wrong with me. I just thought, something was wrong. And now I know I'm, I'm just the right amount of sensitive. I'm Jamie sensitive. I am very em- empathetic. I, um, I'm a strong empath. I am very sensitive. I cry at the drop of a hat. I will tell you all my feelings. I have, I seem to have extra feelings than most people, but that's okay. That's who I am. And it's used in a toxic way to shake off your truth. So when you try to confront somebody, when you try to say something about your truth, you will be told you're too 
sensitive, you worry too much, you make a big deal about everything. That's that kind of toxic behavior. Mind reading. People who not only assume that they know what's going on in your head, but they're going to act on it. And I know this from friends. I know this personally. I know this professionally. This also gets into like super, super manipulative behavior. So a person has not only decided they can read your mind, but they're going to counteract you. It's like they're playing a chess game in their head and they're going to act this way to get you to manipulate your next move. It's really fucked up. And again, it has nothing to do. You you might be stunned because you're like, but that's not even what happened. Like they've concocted a whole story in their head that has nothing to do with or, or necessarily your response. And if you feel a good hallmark of somebody doing this is if you cannot write a text or say something without playing a chess game, thinking, what's my next move? Because if I do this, she's going to do this, right? Like not only are you starting to do a little mind reading, but when you are acting that way, that means you're involved in this game. Like somebody's, somebody's manipulating you into a chess game. Moving the goalpost. This is a big, big toxic trait. Again, we find this in parents. I find this in parents with like, this is happening a lot with COVID parents moving the goalposts. Like they decide that I, I keep hearing this, that parents got really pissed off about not being able to see their grandkids on Christmas or on Thanksgiving. And yet in April, they were quarantining because they don't want to get COVID. So that's moving the goalpost. It can also be moving the goalpost like, you know, oh, I'm so happy I saw you guys on Christmas, but it's too bad that we couldn't see you on Christmas Eve. Like it never being happy. So they they move that goalpost that you have been striving to hit because you know that they're toxic. <laughs> Okay. Flooding. Flooding can happen. This can happen to you personally. This can be a response, um, but this can also be something you do to others. I find this happens a lot female to male in relationships, which is you give too much information and, or you receive too much emotional information, emotional stimulus, and you get flooded and you mostly freeze, you freeze up. So that can happen a lot I bring that up because it's it's not as much like something that your parents would have done to you or it may not be directly related in your trauma, but this can happen when you go to therapy. So when you start unpacking some of this stuff, you can get flooded. And so it's really worth being aware of your emotional landscape and do you feel like it's too much? Step away. You can't afford to get flooded while you're being a parent because it will overtake your emotions and you may actually, if you had severe trauma, it may take you into dissociation and flashbacks and that can be a nightmare while you're trying to parent somebody little. So you want to avoid flooding at all costs. So when you're unpacking, it might be that you have to unpack some of your stuff, like just in your therapist's office or just in an allotted time. Because again, that flooding can be very detrimental to parenting. And next episode, I'm really going to talk about some practical ways to help you start to unpack your shit so that you don't do your maladaptive behaviors. You don't flood yourself. You don't dissociate. On that note, let's define dissociation because that's really big and also really not cool. It could be a little dangerous when you're parenting. So that is just simply saying it's a state of being disconnected, but there are degrees of severity. So like on the way, way, way end of the spectrum is multiple personality disorder or what's called dissociative identity disorder now. And that's when literally the psyche cracks into pieces because the person has to dissociate. They have to get away from the pain. It can be literally like spacing out. 
It can be a hairpin trigger. Like your kid could trigger you so suddenly and it could be a trauma. Like you might have a flashback and you just zone out, like you freeze and you zone out. It can't be just being really, really, really unmindful. And that's when we get hurt. That's when you might burn yourself, you know, on the stove. But again, it's not, if you feel like you are dissociating a lot, it needs to be attended to right away because it can really, you can space out to the point that you're not really present with your child. And it can be, it can actually be dangerous. So going on with some other, a a couple of more terms that we find in, in trauma, triangulation. So this is when you get another person involved and triangulation is another one of those rabbit holes. Like you can't, it's really bad. If you find yourself constantly bitching about your spouse to your friends, that's triangulation. You're getting your friends involved. More importantly, your friends are only seeing your one side. Don't get me wrong. I vent all the time to my friends. My friends vent all the time to me, but it should be that it should be venting. It shouldn't be trying to loop another person into the relationship because that person can't be seeing both points of view. And if they can, they might, they, they would have to be so objective and, and they can't. So that's where you really need a therapist or some outside person who can really take both points of view. You want to be careful with triangulation because that happens, that can happen in um families, right? And so that is, that's one of the things that I maintain sort of went wrong with my siblings and I is our childhood was so abusive that we got this triangulation going with my mom. Siblings should be talking together about parents, right? Siblings shouldn't be having mom, you know, especially as grownups, mom shouldn't be the intermediary. It shouldn't be that mom's involved in everything. And so it can be very unhealthy at the best, but at the worst, it can really wreck a relationship because you're not attending to the relationship. You're you're kind of sideswiping it through another person who's going to give you shitty advice because they have their own agenda. Aggressive jabs, I think you guys might be aware of, but that's a real family toxic trait. So that's again, um, oh, I was just joking. Like, it's like people, they really rip you a new one and they really jab you. You feel poked and then it's just, you've been termed too sensitive or they were just joking. It's a behavior I had noticed in my family, particularly around alcohol. Like every, there's a level of alcohol consumption that everybody starts jabbing. And it used to be so mean. And I used to take part in it as a doing it, you know, and then I became aware the more I sort of got away from my family, the more I was aware, like, wow, that's super toxic and super hurtful. So it took me a while to like undo that sort of sarcastic, aggressive way of conversing and relating. And then the last one is boundary testing. You know, this again, boundaries are everything. And almost all our trauma responses lie in poor boundaries or figuring out boundaries. Boundaries with integrity and generosity. So that's how, that's how Brene Brown, I think, I didn't write down who, who said that it's not me, but it's with integrity and generosity. So you want to have integrity with yourself, but you want to be generous and believe it or not saying no can be generous. And again, boundaries are what's okay and what's not okay. And people who are testing your boundaries will create a trauma response in you, which is why we get so triggered with our kids because they are constantly testing boundaries, right? So like when you, before you were a parent, you might be loosely aware of these things, but your kid is going to test your boundaries at every level. And so that's what can be so triggering. One of the things I found with boundary testing is 
it leads to your inner child feeling abandoned. So if you think of yourself as the parent of your inner child and you keep letting people skew the boundaries, you abandon a piece of yourself. And so that's also very triggering because that inner child who has all these wounds gets triggered. And then you might have your behaviors, your maladaptive behaviors start to come out, whatever that looks like, yelling, drinking, addict, um, you know, lenience. Like if your child's testing the boundary, that's what a lot of people are too lenient with the boundary because they're like, Ugh, they don't, it's not that you don't want a parent. It's that you don't want the conflict with your child because that's going, that is going to have to lead you to have a really strong boundary. So those are the terms. Those are just so we were clear. And just so again, my hope for you is to start to really recognize when we open these cans of worms, it's messy. And so you might, you know, there's, you're going to spend a fair amount of time not liking your parents. And I think that was so vital. Again, for me, I feel very fortunate that I did my trauma work before I was a parent because I know like a lot of people, my clients and my friends, you know, like you might need your mom for childcare. So you can't do part of therapy is like fucking hating your parents because of what they did. Right. You get to the other side of that and you get to really that statement. They did the best they could. Like you get to that, but in a very holistic sense, not in a spiritual bypassing way where you're like, oh, they did the best they they could. Like you still have to work through your hurt. Part of working through that hurt is really disliking them for a while and then coming out on the other side. And, you know, it's hard if you need them for childcare or if they're like living next door to you. I did this work when my family was 3000 miles away from me. I had like this physical space that allowed me to really not like them, but not have to cap that, you know, because I wasn't around them. So again, I just hope that this, there's going to be, what do I want to say? There's a part of this that you have to, there is a pity party, right? You have to feel bad for yourself and you have to feel bad for the child that was wounded. And it's really hard when your kids are going through the same age that you went through. So say you experienced a lot of trauma at five and your child is five, you're going to see their behaviors and, and reflections. And you're going to be like, oh my God. And then you look at how little they are and you go, oh my God, like my mom was so awful to me when I was that age and that my, my kid's so little. So there, there's all these emotions and everything. So feel free to toss these turns around and kind of play like, is this what I'm dealing with? Is this how I react? Is this my trauma response? Is this how, how do I feel? Is this like a family dynamic? Is there a relationship dynamic with my spouse? So there's so many offshoots in where this can go. Again, just a broad spectrum definition. So we can start to speak the same language. Oh my God, that was almost an hour episode. Thank you if you are still listening. (laughs) But we had to get through that and I wanted that to be all one episode. So you guys rock on. As always, I'm honored. I thank you for your support, but more importantly, I thank God for this special space that we've created here on Patreon, that we can do this work, that I can be so vulnerable and open with my experiences and that you guys are so open and vulnerable with your experiences because we couldn't do this if this was public, right? Like we have to have this closed loop system. So I'm so grateful you're here. I'm so grateful that you trust me with this work. And I just am so happy we're doing this and unpacking this. All right, you guys, as always, rock on. All right, I'm going to sign off for today. You can always go to jamieglowacki.com for the super cool latest updates, including the launch of my new book, Yummy New Book Presale Treats, when we release new episodes, and how to work with me directly. 
And of course, if you need any potty training help, there's a handy link there that will take you to all my potty training resources, including all my courses. That's the Oh Crap Potty Training online course, my pooping solutions course, and my night training supplement. And if you need additional help, how to book with a certified Oh Crap consultant. That's all at jamieglowacki.com. Have a beautiful day and rock on.